2: Hello and welcome to the Curzon Podcast. On the show this week we'll be discussing David Lowry's ghost story as well as hearing from the writer-director David Lowry himself. And not only that, but we also have an extra special guest this week in the form of filmmaker and film critic Charlie Line, who drops in to talk to us as well. I'm Sam Howlett and this week I'm joined by two co-hosts, Irena Musumechi. Hello. Hello. And Ryan Hewitt. Hello. Thanks for being here. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for Thank having you. us. <laughs> uh, so before we get into the main show, uh, what have you guys been watching? Uh, yeah, I could go first. Uh, so this week I
0: watched a documentary called Blank City, which is, well, the internet can't quite make its mind up on when this was made. It's anytime time between 2009 and 2011, but let's go with 2010, happy medium. It's a documentary about the the DIY independent filmmaking scene in New York in the late 70s, uh, the no-wave movement which birthed people like Jim Jarmusch most Mm -hmm. famously. His first film Permanent Vacation is kind of one of the the main films in that movement. Um, It's about all the the artists, the collectives, musicians and filmmakers who hung around places like CBGBs and and Max's Kansas City and made films on their own dollar with borrowed or stolen equipment and really had a it captured a moment for a few years where they were doing some very avant-garde things really making their own kind of their own style of filmmaking and then it moved, it morphed into cinema transgression people like mm-hmm. nick Zedd and richard kern and then it they all fell out with each other and it died a, a death but it was quite an exciting little moment and a few of those filmmakers jim Jarmusch being the, the lead one yeah
2: you know carried on right cool Irena, how about yourself? What have you been up to? What have you been watching? So,
3: I very unusually for me, I've been <laughs> on a holiday and a real holiday, not a, a film industry holiday where you end up at a film yeah. festival and you stick yourself into a cinema uh, every day. Um, so, I've not actually been watching very much, but I have been reading uh, a really cool um, trilogy of books uh, written by Jeff van der Meer, mm-hmm. uh, who is an American uh, sort of sci fi writer who specializes in a genre called, now called, the New Weird. Um, and it's very much kind of nature writing meets um, H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. Uh, so um, this, the, the reason I'm mentioning it is because the trilogy has just been um, adapted by Alex Garland into a film uh, okay. which will be released yeah. I think around February, uh, March next year. And the first chapter is called Annihilation and basically he's cast uh, Natalie Portman as the main character who plays this kind of um biologist who goes into an expedition into a space called Area X presumably off the coast of Florida and this is an area where some kind of event has happened which is very complicated to unpack and explain without major spoilers but essentially a place where nature has kind of taken over from man and has developed into this kind of semi-alien form of life and everyone who walks into it is forever changed Um, and uh, the film will star Oscar Isaac as well I'm very excited about Mm -hmm. uh, this particular piece of (laughs) casting I think he'll, he'll do great. Uh, in a kind of slightly smaller but no less important yeah. role so very much excited about that and it was really nice to rest my eyes for a little bit
2: <laughs> <laughs> is, will this be garland's first film since um ex machina
3: i think so yeah which is also very exciting because yeah. ex machina was fantastic yeah, because... yeah, it, yeah. yeah
2: yeah all right um i saw a very strange film on netflix called coherence Okay. Which um, is incredibly low key. It's pretty much all set in one house, it has about eight people in it, and it's about um, these sort of group of couples that meet up for like a dinner party while a comet passes over Earth, and then strange stuff begins to happen, like stuff with time, stuff with kind of almost parallel dimensions. Mm-hmm. But it's all done on an incredibly low budget, and all it's sent, it, most of it is, in fact, in one room. I just thought this is the kind of thing that could only get an audience through Netflix these days because it's so small, it's so hard to explain it to people without spoiling it, it's got no stars. But yeah, I was really impressed by it, how low key it was, and how it got these big sci fi ideas out there through that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I highly recommend Coherence. And it had Nicholas Brendan, who you may remember as uh, Xander from Buffy. Oh, I actually haven't seen him. Date's awesome, yeah. I haven't seen him anything for ages, so that was a nice surprise. Oh, so this is the week of weird, yeah. strange and weird, all of us. Right, so as I mentioned earlier, our film of the week this week is A Ghost Story, which follows the ghost of a recently deceased man who remains in the house he shared with his wife after his death. Uh, it's David Larry's first film since his big budget Disney movie, Pete's Dragon, and it reunites him with Casey Affleck as the ghost of the title, and Rooney Mara as his wife. The film, which was largely shot in secret, Uh, premiered at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival, where it became one of the most talked-about films at the festival, partly because it chooses to silence its lead actor and hide him under a sheet for the majority of the film, partly because of its unusual aspect ratio and because of a long scene involving chocolate pie. So before we discuss it, here's Jake Cunningham talking to the film's writer and
1: director, David Lowry.
4: Okay, so we are delighted to welcome David Lowry, director of A Ghost Story, onto the Curzon Film Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, so,
4: David, the the film that we're talking about today, all around London, in the magazines, in the tube, across the country, people are all being confronted by this image of a ghost in a white sheet.
1: Now, was that image uh, and shape the starting point of this film for you? It was indeed. That image actually predates the movie. I've been wanting to make a movie with a ghost in a bed sheet for a very long time and just waiting for the right movie to utilize it. So, uh, this was that movie, but I've been... It's an image that has been uh, been on my mind for a while. Okay, and uh, was, so is it like a, a Halloween outfit for you that kind of just
4: distorted and turned into something that could be a bit more than just a ghost in a sheet?
1: Exactly. I love the idea of taking this image, which is universally understood to represent a ghost, and letting it actually be a ghost. We usually see, we, we there's usually like an intermediary uh interpretation which is you you look at it and think oh that's someone dressed up as a ghost and if you remove the dressed up as from that you know understanding you're left with a really interesting representation of an actual phantom and of an actual spirit of someone who has you know left left uh left their life behind and i really wanted to see if we could imbue this halloween costume with uh with something that felt truly supernatural
4: and I think that's it. It's more supernatural than anything else because it made me think like, directors like Guillermo del Toro will take a ghost and repurpose it and reimagine it to, and reverse the horror onto the, the human characters. And it's more the, the traditional horror figure that we might identify with in something like Pan's Labyrinth or Devil's Backbone. But it still retains in the horror genre. Now here we're operating with a horror character but completely outside of its genre. Was that a big part of the appeal for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love the horror genre. It's probably my favorite genre. And I love going to the movies and getting scared. And I love the works of Guillermo del Toro. I love how he how he subverts the genre while still participating in it. And I wanted to participate in it as well. But I knew that this movie wasn't a horror film. I wanted to use some of the tropes of horror films and some of the language of horror films. But I wanted to use them for a film that definitely wasn't scary and definitely wasn't a horror film. I've said horror film far too many times in the past sentence, so forgive me for that. But uh, I, I definitely wanted this to be you know, a provocative movie, but I, I knew it wasn't going to be scary. I knew it was going to be thoughtful and contemplative and, and hopefully emotional and strange and, and unusual, but I knew that it, you know, there's n- not, no one for a second would ever mistake it for an actual horror film. And so at the
4: center of the film, we've got the ghost, uh, Casey Affleck, his wife, Rooney Mara. And to me, the third character and almost the subject of the film is the house
1: as well. Could you tell me how that came into it? I mean, I love making movies about abandoned houses. <laughs> this is probably my this is my third one uh, and particularly old abandoned houses in Texas. So it's a it's a touchstone for me and it's something I keep returning to. And indeed, it is sort of the third character in the film. It's the uh, it's the thing our character can't let go of, and you know, for a long time, I was debating as to whether I should call this movie a haunted house. Like I, I I initially thought that would be the title of the movie. Ultimately, the ghost took precedence over the house, and and that was you know I think the right choice to make. But definitely, the house was on my mind a lot, and that was a you know finding the right house and finding a, a house that would you know, that could change in the way that this house changes in the film was, was one of the, the most important aspects of pre production.
4: And it's, it's, the film's full of a lot of kind of lovely cinephilic talking points, like, oh, it's, it's actually a ghost story, but it's just a white sheet, or the aspect ratio and the round, and it's shot on film. So before you started shooting it, did you imagine that this, the
1: aspect ratio of the film would be this talking point as well? No, I did not think anyone would ever really have much to say about that because I felt that the the costume would overwhelm the conversation. So I'm excited that people are are excited by the aspect ratio. That's really great because I love that aspect ratio and and I'm glad that that folks are picking up on it. I also knew that, you know, this is an unusual movie and it's a little bit off the beaten path and I felt that if we, you know, from frame one presented the audience with an image that was slightly unusual as that aspect ratio is nowadays uh it would clue people into the fact that this movie is going to be a little bit off the beaten path so i thought it'd be helpful in that regard but i didn't realize it would become a talking point and i'm glad that it has yeah because um, it made me think i wonder when alexander payne
4: was making nebraska and wanted it to be black and white he had to was forced to make a color cut as well was there any
1: trouble that you had to convince people to shoot this in the way that you wanted to shoot it no, not at all. The only trouble was having to retrain my brain to think about images in uh to think about images in a in a in a square instead of a rectangle. I just naturally think in widescreen, and even though I love the 1331 aspect ratio, it took a lot of, you know, work to figure out how to use it right. It wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. <laughs>
4: Um, and a big part of the the film that's kind of lived on for me since watching it has been the music. Um, you've brought Daniel Hart over from your previous projects. And in the last 12 months, we've had his incredible scores for this film, for Pete's Dragon. And he's also done the music for S-Town, which I think is amazing. Do you feel like you've kind of struck gold with him
1: as well? Oh, 100%. Half of the reason I make movies is to give you know, Daniel Hart, an excuse to write another score, because I just want to hear more of his music. I love, I love what he does. Um, he grew up with my producing partner, Toby Halbrooks, and Toby introduced me to him when I needed music for my very first film, St. Nick. And he's done every film I've made since then, and I can't imagine doing any project without him. I feel he, you know, I, I get the movie two-thirds of the way to the finish line, and he, he brings it home, and, and I'm happy to let him do it, because what he does is absolutely amazing.
4: And there's, there's a recurring song in the film, I Get Overwhelmed. With the location, cinematography, the set, knowing that Casey Affleck's character was a musician, I kind of got it in my head that he would be kind of making War on Drugs, Bruce Springsteen-y, Americanary songs, and this is quite different. Could you tell us about that song and where the, where the tone and sound of that
1: came from? I mean, the tone and sound came from Daniel because he wrote that song for his band, and it was gonna be the, you know, the, the lead single on their next record, which is coming out soon, and, and it will be on that record. But when I heard it, I I mean, to to borrow the title of the song, I got overwhelmed and I couldn't stop listening to it. And it just had this tone to it, this this desperate quality, this very bittersweet sentimental desperation that felt the way I wanted this movie to feel. It also was had a had a pop sensibility to it that i was really excited by i wanted this movie to to embrace the play that had to be playful in that way to have a sort of pop quality to it and uh and so i wrote this song into the script and then i asked, asked daniel if he minded if i used it and thankfully he said yes and uh and it really became like the center piece of the film in many ways you know that that's that that song Literally occurs about halfway into the movie is when we fir- when we first hear it, but it really became you know the emotional you know focal point for both Casey and Rooney and for I think for the audience as well and uh, you
4: mentioned Rooney there, show. I imagine you've been asked a lot about the pie scene uh, in which Rooney eats a whole pie during one unbroken take before exiting to another room uh It's extraordinary she's extraordinary in it, but I wanted to ask you who's pulling focus at the end of the
1: scene because they must have nerves of steel uh justin scheit our our first assistant camera was pulling focus there and uh and what can i say he nailed it <laughs> he just nailed it we didn't you know he he knew that he knew to follow her to the bathroom when she she ran off uh off screen and and uh we didn't talk about it. he just did it and it was perfect I and mean, he's a great ac so Yep. Um,
4: I mean, I I don't think I could handle that. Watching someone, you know, you can only do one take at this, and you can only get one shot, and just nailing it like that. And what what was the mood like on set during that scene? Have everyone just just kind of witnessing that? Do you you imagine you feel like this is special to be part of this?
1: It did feel special, but it also, you know, we we approached it very pragmatically. We we everybody kind of knew that this was a very important scene, and we didn't fuss over it too much. We just, everybody did their jobs and, and like, as with that focus pool, we didn't really think about it too much. We just knew what had to be done and and we did it. And I remember it being very quiet and peaceful that day on set and uh, and everyone was focused on their one little task. You know, the sound guy had to plant the mic in the right place and, and uh, we had to put the camera in the right place, the lights had to do a certain thing and Justin had to pull focus the right way. It was all very mechanical. And I think, you know, because we were focusing so much on just, you know, Our own, you know, my my job as a director, Andrew's job as a cinematographer, Justin's job as an AC, and then Rooney focused on her job as as the actress in the scene. We all just you know, brought our best to that moment and and didn't overstep our bounds. That we didn't overthink things, we didn't fuss over it, and and as a result, it was a very, you know, simple scene to achieve. But we knew that there was a lot of weight on it. You know, we knew that it was an important scene that we had to get it right. But we didn't. Overthink we didn't we didn't stress about that
4: and Lastly uh, news recently broke about strange angel, which sounds uh, interesting to say the least uh, for those listeners who don't know about Jack Parsons uh, and his story Could you give us a brief synopsis and uh, how you might be involved in that project?
1: this is like a this is a television pilot that crossed my desk just a few weeks ago and and I've done a little bit of TV in the past. I've, I've directed uh, two things for television, and I really enjoyed those experiences, so I was, I was always open to doing more. And when I read this script, I couldn't believe that it hadn't already been made into a movie. It's a true story about uh, one of the founders of JPL, one of the fathers of modern rocket science, who also was a member of Alistair Crowley's occult uh sex rituals in hollywood back in the 30s and 40s the story goes much deeper than that it is really insane i uh i look forward to being a small part of uh, its uh realization on screens everywhere next year but uh i uh i it's it's just one of those stories you have to look up and read about because it is just too crazy to be true and yet it is true
4: excellent david larry thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you it's been a pleasure
2: So uh, the first thing I asked myself after leaving this film was, have I seen anything like that before? And the only answer I could come up with was no. Uh, What were your first thoughts immediately after watching this film? Well
0: I think it's a (laughs) film of, it it feels very original um, in terms of the story. When when we talk about the vibe and the tone of the film, I think there are some parallels you can draw between David Gordon Green's work, his early work in particular, and Terence Malick is someone who keeps coming up. It has mm. uh, quite a lofty quality to it that is reminiscent of Malick's work. Although I think that a ghost story in David Lowry is a bit more humble than, mm. than Malick, who projects a certain wisdom, whereas Lowery seems like he's exploring ideas. He's not quite sure yeah. what the truth is, but he's, he's willing to put his neck on the line and say what he thinks might be going on in the world.
3: Yeah, that's funny because our job basically entails finding films that are similar to the film mm-hmm. that we're discussing and thinking about how they performed and how we're going to uh, talk about them for our audiences. So we, we always have to do this kind of um, little Uh, comparative analysis which films were you reminded of and for me again yes it was very much David Gordon Green and Terrence Malick but also uh, my my two kind of references for this were personal shopper which is obviously another ghost story although very very different in its treatment of ghosts and also in its genre uh, or genres (laughs) shall we say because personal shopper is really kind of going in lots of different directions uh and who knows what the genre of a ghost story is um and also for me um there was kind of a, a reminiscence somewhere although these are two widely different titles but upstream color is a title that came to mind you know the work of yeah. shane Carruth, Definitely. and it's kind of sort of different idea about the weird and how to represent the weird but i also uh, a very much a kind of sundancy indie aesthetic yeah. that yeah. runs through a ghost story
2: and he, um, David Larré, actually edited uh, Upstream Color, yes. so there's definitely a connection there, mm-hmm. stylistic crossover. Um, yeah, there are certain parts of it that slightly reminded me, in a really bizarre way, of Beetlejuice, in that <laughs> it's like, Beetlejuice. because it's kind of <laughs> yes, hang on, anyway. haunted <laughs> house. It's kind of haunted house, but a different look at a haunted house, like from the other side. So, from the point of view of the ghost um and this whole thing of the bedsheet is used in beetlejuice quite a lot as well and i mean this, what this film does really brilliantly is use that iconic image that we're so familiar with and is almost a comedic figure now the yeah ghost of two and uses that to create something with actual meaning and sadness and grief um, and i think that's something that is at the heart of any ghost narrative this idea of Something that can't let go, something that's lost and something that needs to find some sort of meaning in order to move on. Um, did you find that in the film, this these kind of themes? And how do they sort of present themselves to you? Absolutely, I think it
0: what you're talking about about moving on, about letting go of things, finding finding peace with your situation, I think is ultimately what it's about. It's about the tagline is it's all about time, mm. I think. And it's kind of, it's about patience, it's about being able to grieve and deal with heartache and loneliness. And I'm sure everybody has, you know, you've been dumped or you've been the dumper or you've lost someone under tragic circumstances, you can't engineer or rush your recovery. It happens when it happens. And then maybe there's a moment when suddenly you get that release. And you didn't even see it coming you just realize you're okay now and i think that the arc of the story is building towards that sure what don't want to go into spoiler territory un- but yeah. yeah what's
3: unusual though is how much a ghost story is really about the ghost because usually yeah. all of this stuff affects yeah. the living and there are so many films that kind of look at the process of of grieving from the point of view of the living personal shopper being one of them which is very much yeah. looking at the the iteration of grief as a kind of psychological disturbance almost that rep- kind of appears as a paranormal uh, effect whereas here you are empathizing completely with this character who has no facial expression uh, Mm. doesn't talk so we are in a way spared the Casey Affleck uh, whiny voice, yeah, yeah. much as we like that whiny voice in certain films, yeah. such as The Assassination of Jesse James, yeah. of which we are both huge fans. Uh, but it, really, it's um, it's it's a story that's told from the point of view of a character who's not emoting or expressing anything, and yet yeah. is incredibly expressive, yeah. thanks to a combination of the framing, the the pacing of the storytelling, just this kind of odd be choices about camera angles and how the movement of this ghost is so just striking and unusual.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, especially what you're saying about how expressive it is and how a lot of the time we talk about performances and we say things like it's in the eyes Mm. and we think about recently Dunkirk with Tom Hardy and all we really see is his eyes. Whereas in the ghost story, you're just looking at two hollow black spaces but onto that you're able to project so many emotions because of the way they frame things like you say, the way things are paced, the expressive movements that they give to the ghost and that sheet brings.
3: For me, there was also something about the blankness of the the sheet. You know, you have this kind of comedy moment when he gets up for the first time, if we're allowed to spoil yeah. it, yeah. and you think, what? <laughs> and then it becomes completely acceptable, and you sort of really do project something onto this blank sheet, and it's, it's very much like the process of watching cinema. You're watching things projected yeah. onto a, a blank sheet and a yeah, blank canvas, a
0: and you're nice. really
3: just going to buy into this concept and follow it. And for me, that also connected with the idea of the empty house, which is something that, for some reason, I personally find really moving i really love going into empty houses abandoned houses yeah. Yeah. uh all these kinds of you know slightly creepy places looking for whatever is left of the people who were there before and i think this film absolutely nails this kind of desire to haunt a place or desire yeah. to discover what it is that is there when there's nothing there um So to me, it was just incredibly moving and really powerful. I should also say that I saw this film about three months ago and I haven't rewatched it since. And I have to absolutely confess that there hasn't been a day that I haven't thought about it. I woke up uh, in the middle of the night, the night after watching it, thinking absolutely convinced that there was something <laughs> watching me as I was asleep yeah. and i can't tell you you know getting up to go to the loo in the middle of the night has become a whole new experience <laughs> and it's slightly terrifying but slightly comforting in a way yeah because
0: yeah. cuz it, it's for the most part is a non-threatening yeah. entity yeah definitely. It?
2: Yeah, yeah. it's yeah it's not a ghost you're particularly scared of it's kind of almost a nice thought that these people are still around and yeah s- yeah I mean, we've we, spoke, we spoke, yeah we threw up a few films there which use ghosts in them and they're often used as figures of horror mm-hmm. ways to create fear but i think ghosts can equally be ways to create comfort yeah and yes this kind of does that as well um and you mentioned there the whole thing of the empty house and at times it felt like he was more connected to the house than he was to rooney mara's character yeah, yeah. in a way um, because when she leaves, he, he doesn't leave, he stays, he thinks there's something in this house that I'm connected to, not necessarily the person.
3: What? She's left a message in the house, yeah. hasn't she? Yeah. To me, that's, that's really important, this notion that she, she did this, she says this, that okay. as a child, she did this in every house that she lived in. She left a secret message to be uncovered. And he knows where the message is, and he's trying to recover it. And are we allowed spoilers? Are we allowed to say what happens? Because uh, uh, well, <laughs> if if that message is recovered, what happens? Mm, you know, okay, is yeah. the the key. Uh, so that's really important to me in terms of how is he is he attached to the house? Is he attached to the person, or is right. he attached to some dream or something that this house meant for them? Uh, and this relate the relationship that he has with the house, where you know she she asks him, you know, she wants to move, yeah. she wants to move out. Yeah. So there's something weird about it it's falling apart this house and as any woman knows you need to get out of it before (laughs) it's a lot of work (laughs) to tidy it up um and so they have this conversation the night before he dies shall we move shall we not move and he says no there's something about this house i want to stay here there's something here
0: the history the
3: history um so uh, to me the house is not just the physical house it's it's really a home, and what that embodies for them as a couple and for him as a person is clearly something that resonates, yeah, yeah, which in a weird way, I'm not going to go on a digression, reminded <laughs> me of a conversation we had about Howard's end recently, yeah. which was um So in Howard's End, there's there's a whole story. Howard's End is a house, a country house that's passed on from one person to another. But for some reason, something happens that prevents this straightforward inheritance from happening. Except these two people between whom the transaction really happens pass a story from one to the other. And no one else knows about this story. And it's a story about magical things and sort of pig's teeth being embedded into a tree in the garden of the house. Uh, for more about this check out our interview <laughs> with Samuel West uh, in which we talked at length about it but it's it's really the stories that connect the people who live in houses and the idea of what you leave behind there and what other people may have left behind that suddenly resonates with you that makes that house not empty at all for me so that attachment is more than just I quite fancy this bedroom and uh, the curtains and
0: yeah um, David Larry did a Q&A at the end of the screening that I saw and he said in this film, no one owns anything. People some, some of the characters assume ownership, but the house is an example of that, where Casey stays there, he feels it is his home, but other people intrude on it and ultimately he has no say in whether it survives beyond the runtime of the film. Equally, the same thing is true of Rooney. Mara's character, he feels a bond with her but she has to leave him she has to move on and it's about feeling ownership over these things in our life that we don't actually have any kind of bond or any anything that can't be broken
2: i then that's where i um, excuse <clears> me <throat> and that's where i saw the connection with the um the aspect ratio, actually, Right. that he's kind of so the film, we should say, has this bizarre aspect ratio where it's very. It, that it, ratio. It's, it's a ch- sort of e- academy. Yeah.
3: Um, academy ratio. ratio sort of academy because okay. it has these rounded corners. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit. It's, what, yeah, it's
2: like a, it's, it's a square with rounded corners, yeah. essentially, right?
3: What's yeah. that a, Instagram filter called? Is it called Bird? Something Bird.
0: <laughs> so like, yeah, that's what it reminded yeah, I mean, me of. There's
3: a, there's yeah. a, I have a friend who was completely obsessed with just taking Instagram pictures with right, okay. this frame. So I have it very um, clear in my
2: yeah, mind. Um, Sorry. So yeah. Well, uh, Jake's going to be talking to Charlie Line about this in more detail later on. But for me, it was about boxing someone in and about someone's space being um, pushed towards their body. And so uh, mm. the ghost feels like he has to be boxed in, he has to be connected to this, like, a house is essentially a box. You know, he, feels like he, has to be, he has to stay within the confines of this box and he's connected to this box. That's what I thought the aspect ratio was there for. Mm.
3: So what happens when the box is removed? Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's just how I interpreted it. How did you guys interpret the, uh, the meaning behind the aspect ratio? Like, what do you think it meant?
3: well I was hmm, I we, we were asking ourselves this question and we've, we've discussed it quite a few times and yeah. for me it was mostly an aesthetic uh, sort of filmmaking yeah. aesthetic choice and bizarrely even though the the academy ratio has this long hallowed history and was essentially the standard right. uh, ratio for shooting films before widescreen took over which are, is now the standard the kind of elongated yeah. rectangle um, the The film doesn't really harken back to Academy Racial films. It doesn't do the job that Meeks Cut-Off, for example, does, which is a a recent uh, uh, example of a film shot in in Academy Racial, which is a Western that's really trying to go back to the Western genre and disrupt it in a very significant way, but from within its visual limitations. to me, it's the, the Instagram thing. Although it sounds really daft, um, <laughs> it, there is some significance in there. There is, you know, if you think about it, Instagram is kind of a way to photograph something that's very present, and it's a very contemporary aesthetic, which applies this filter of yeah. old to photographs to give them this kind of depth of historical uh, profundity and meaning, um, which can be. Extremely synthetic and artificial but at the same time I think it's it's really trying to do the job of the film to say something quite complex about timelessness and about the passing yeah. of time and how that connects with nostalgia. Now all of these are very very big words and I don't have I'm afraid a unifying theory of why I think this film is shot in this ratio but that's, that's kind of the space where I found myself thinking that there's something for example the film doesn't really rely on contemporary technology to tell the story uh it's very difficult to tell what time period it's actually set in because as we were saying there are characters who look like they're from the 70s yeah and yet go to shoreditch these days and you'll see people who look like they've been shipped in from our our time traveling spacecraft Um, so it feels very contemporary and in that contemporary uh aspiration to try and make a kind of timeless cinema to try and dislodge something from the specifics of a time period. So yeah, there you go, <laughs> what do you think?
0: <laughs> I, I agree with you, I think it is ultimately an aesthetic choice, yeah. I think it's, it, the film feels thoroughly contemporary, it feels like it is made in the year that it is made, it, the way that it observes life. but everyone who lives in it and exists either looks like they're from another time or the house is very it's a lo-fi life we were saying Mm. it doesn't feel like there's much technology in the house it's a suburban property in texas it doesn't have the backdrop of of a metropolis anywhere so it feels completely timeless and it is this maybe it's this hearkening back for a simpler way of life that all these nostalgic filters on Instagram mm. try and capture when really it's all just a lot of contemporary sound. But then the music in the piece in the, is quite modern. It's very disruptive and yes, mm-hmm. electronic, and kind yeah. of yeah. abrasive in places. Although it comes
2: very tender during the lyrics. But
3: very Bonny Yeah,
2: so yeah, yeah. I think nostalgia is a good word to put on this film. Um, and yeah, particularly in relation to this idea of being attached to a house. Did you guys see um, 99 Homes with Michael yeah. Shannon? Yes. There's a quote. Michael Shannon, yeah. There's yeah. a quote. So I'm like, don't get attached to houses. They're just boxes. Yeah. Mm. No idea. Uh, very good. Yeah, to this yeah. As well. But they're not. Yeah. They're not. <laughs> yeah. they're,
3: they're boxes with stories in them. <laughs> they're, you know, they're 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 not. And I think this this is a very contemporary and very kind of capitalist way of looking at houses and of course 99 homes is a film that really takes capitalism to town and really tears it apart Uh, it's you know houses in this film and in so many films are just so much more than the kind of the property the property ladder the thing that Mm. you sell to get a bigger one and that's um that's something that makes it particularly affecting i think
2: um so yeah as i mentioned in the introduction there a lot of people are talking about this pie scene um, yes what did you guys make of that because I found it I've actually found it quite really difficult to watch and especially the sound quite excruciating the, the, same the fork on glass the fork on glass and sort of the munching the swallowing ah! oh yeah there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of that sorry, sorry if listening I'm not, <laughs> right, so not going do that but.
3: let us not use the words gag reflex <laughs> yeah. this is the cousin podcast after all <laughs>
2: But, and it went on, it goes on for so long, and yeah. it just, it just, oh, it's difficult to watch. What did you guys think?
3: Is it really a chocolate pie? It's a chocolate pie, yeah.
2: Oh, it's I a thought vegan It's a, a vegan chocolate pie. It's a, pie. Chocolate it's a, pie, a vegan chocolate
3: pie. Yeah. I thought it was a pumpkin pie, which we, even more ick-inducing, like yeah. imagine yeah. eating a whole pumpkin pie, and that I would well,
2: love yeah. pumpkin pie. Yeah, yeah. But, um, with no cream.
3: With no cream. <laughs> Not a fan of cream. I just uh, I leave the cream. I love a slice of pumpkin okay. pie. <laughs> I I was convinced it was pumpkin pie because of the kind of Halloweeny uh, type yeah. uh, you know references. Um, it felt it felt to me very true to life. I, yeah. I have had moments in my life uh, where if you don't want to think about anything you just kind of stuff your face (laughs) which is not a very uh, healthy thing to encourage please kids at home do not do (laughs) this. it's very bad for you um but it just um i think it's meant to be excruciating to watch it's meant to be one of those moments where you're also made to think has she actually fed herself for the past few days um i I've had very little experience of funerals and death in my life, but when my grandfather died in southern Italy, um, there's there's kind of a rule, you're not allowed to cook in the house of the deceased, so everyone brings you food, literally everyone in town. So on the day of his funeral, we had more food than the (laughs) 100 people who were there could possibly eat, and we just had to keep eating, and it's kind of a weird... Response mechanism because you're feeding yourself for survival, and yet you're having to get through all this stuff. You cannot reject it. You can't say, "Oh, you know, this is no thank you." So there's something in there about about the process of grief and how horrible it actually is from a physical point of view. How you're going to sustain yourself and how you're going to force yourself through stuff, even though you don't want to do it. And once you're halfway through it, you just have to continue. So. There's kind of a, there's something in that endurance and in that length of time watching it. And bless, poor Rooney Mara, <laughs> the things you have to do for acting. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I think the, the experience of watching it is quite, it, it's a bit excruciating yeah. for various reasons. I think it, it, when it initially starts you see an emotion straight away and you can start to recognise what's happening and then it goes on a bit longer than you feel like it should have cut at one point yeah. and then it goes on more and then it continues going and you suddenly become aware of the technique of this this whole scene and the conceit of the scene and you start to think about... I mean, I start to think about, oh, wow, he hasn't cut. And I it almost took me out of the scene, out of the film. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of... What Stuart Lee does when he does his repetitions that add yeah. absurdia and he's you know Del Boy falls through the bar yeah. over and over and over again and you go through this range of emotions where you almost go through stages of grief where you start to get a bit annoyed that you're still watching yeah. this and then you accept that you're still watching it and question why you are and reflect on why you are and what's brilliant about that whole sequence for me is that at the end of when it comes to its head you get shocked out of the, the repetition of mm. the eating without a cut it's just within the scene things something happens that immediately pulls you back to the emotion because it's a very yeah. dramatic moment and you immediately come back to where you where you started which was this is a, a depiction of intense grief mm. but within that you've gone through a lot of questions about the filmmaking you've had time to come contemplate the scene i always feel
3: You can observe the filmmaking so clearly that mm. there's something about the tyranny of the long take you know knowing mm. that you're gonna subject someone to a fixed camera thing for 10 minutes yeah and i, I utterly love it as a big fan of paul thomas anderson yeah. uh who is a, a master of the, the long take and there's a lot of long takes in this film yeah. but to me it really also connected to this idea of um both the frame and what are you looking at when you're looking at something that is a kind of fixed frame. Um, and, and there's real mastery in focusing where the viewer's attention goes, and making sure that there's something going on in every corner of that frame, yeah. even when it seems that there's very yeah. little going on, because there's there's very subtle work happening with lighting. I can think of you know a lot of kind of fixed camera shots, or for example the um, the the which is not a fixed camera shot, but the reveal of the accident is absolutely yeah. stunning, yeah, um, and, and very arresting and. Unusual, uh, you know. I've I've never seen a film that kind of pulls back from the, the shocking moment and gives you another one in a completely different way, um, you know. Uh, so th- th- it's it's quite it's quite a difficult experience to sit and watch a filmmaker work as well as watching what yeah. the narrative yeah. of yeah. the film is trying to do. But that, that, to me, is a moment where I get really excited. That moment where I'm kind of working through yeah. it and really trying to figure out what am I looking at? How is it made? Why is it made like this? And what is it telling me? Yeah. And it's it's just wonderful when all of these things sublimate together in the same scene. Which
0: it exactly does in this scene. Yeah. The scene really pays off mm. when it goes full circle back to those original emotions. I think it's a very, very good scene, but quite an
2: experience to sit through. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And there's another um, part of the film as well which does something really interesting with sound, and that's, you mentioned earlier that she's hidden a note in this wall. Yeah. The scratching of his, like, fingers through the cloth, getting the note out. I found that, for some reason, just really sort of scraped into my ear when I was watching it. That's,
3: that's a lot of, like upstream colour. Do you remember yeah. that kind of sound that runs yeah. through upstream colour, which is very distressing? And uh, yeah, the, the scratchy...
1: Yeah. It's,
3: do you, I, I live in an old Victorian house, and there's always these little noises, yeah. and you think, huh, <laughs> who, what is making this? There's this kind of, you know, repeated things that keep happening, and you can't quite yeah. work out.
0: It's such a quiet film in general, yeah. that any sound like that just becomes immediately yeah. pronounced. And there are there are long passages where you feel like you're plunged into silence. There might be some some atmospheric murmurings, but it's a very quiet, largely dialogue free film, and those sounds, like you say, really yeah. stand out.
3: They they also really embody the ghost yeah. in that it's not just an ethereal presence which you could figure out you know is someone's projection or something no it's it's absolutely real it's completely real and you can hear it and you can see it the fact that you mm. continue to see it and not many characters not many characters are able to see mm. him so we we talked about this earlier there's the there's sequence with the um, little boy yeah. and girl and the little boy can absolutely see a ghost he knows he knows there's someone there he knows it's being looked at he can feel it and it's it's quite an interesting sequence that i don't know if you wanted to go into it talking yeah, about sure. how at that point is is the point where uh casey affleck's character goes by the name of c mm. or just ghost uh turns into one of those you know yeah. properly yeah, yeah folktale haunting poltergeist ghost goes absolutely berserk smashes things up and clearly doesn't because he wants to get rid of these people there's something that really great with him um but that relationship with the little boy was was a really revelatory moment for me because it's it really told me this is this is real it's uh, it's absolutely true
2: i think yeah i think on one hand you can see the ghost as like you know metaphorical and allegorical for many things we've been talking about but ultimately there is a ghost in this yeah. film, mm. um, which is kind of nice to see that it, it goes goes for this uh, theme with sincerity, without irony. It's about life as a ghost. It's a ghost story. It's not kind of, you know, attaching it to anything. It's not, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's yeah. very really nice to see. Um, so what did you guys think about some of the other characters, some of the other sequences seen? we've seen? Because we've, we've stayed in the house for quite a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. What did you think of the kind of the hipster party? <laughs> Well um, and that one that big moment, that really long speech, that long stretch yeah, with this guy Aldam's called them um, monologue. Is he, he's credited as the prognosticator? Yes. What did you guys think of that? Because I can't quite decide how I felt about that moment. Yeah,
0: I, I have mixed feelings about that yeah. monologue as well. I think it at the time of watching it, I found it a little bit grating, a little bit pretentious. However, the job, it's, the, what it's doing narratively in uh, allowing us to comprehend what comes after it. Yeah. And again, as I mentioned at the, st- the start, I think Lowry comes from a humble position where he's, he's throwing ideas out, he's not trying to claim that he knows yeah. what life is all about. He's just having a, he's got an idea about what maybe it is and he has a sense of humour about it. So I don't think we're to take the prognosticator entirely seriously. Okay. I think we're supposed to find him a bit of a bore. Yeah. But the way that he is almost prophesying what's going to come next, mm. it works within the film and, it, and ultimately it pays off. Right, I think.
3: He's kind of a character that you've met at every party yeah. you've ever been to, yeah. and it tends to be a man, I'm afraid. <laughs> nice, Man's planner extraordinaire yeah. could be his, uh, his uh, subtitle, but um, I I know that there's, a, there's certainly, you know, in thinking back to the film, a, a great element of dislike of this character or irony, and yet I know that while I was watching it the first time, by this stage I was so happy and prepared to believe whatever this film was going to throw at me mm. that I took it entirely seriously like just straightforward yeah man this is so <laughs> true it's like oh my god that's awesome how did you come up with that and Mozart whoa you know about Mozart um but but there is a there is a key idea in this speech which is the idea of legacy and what you leave yeah, behind yeah. and what remains of you after you've gone which does tie into all the kind of cosmological crazy stuff that happens afterwards and to me it's really important that it's there and it's really important that it's it's expressed in this kind of you know speech vomit kind of yeah yeah here i'm just gonna say it um because otherwise no one else uh, really speaks in the film um so i i I like that moment i very much liked it and I, i i like that kind of I don't like this guy, and yet there is something in what, <laughs> some he's, what he's saying yeah. I'm just going to believe. Plus, I really like his music, can I say? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> so sure, I'm
3: yeah. kind well of well disposed to him.
2: He wrote some music for Pete Dragon, didn't he? Yeah. And that's his kind of and show. He, oh, his I
3: band remember.
2: was very yes. nice. Yeah, yeah. it, it felt slightly like um, someone telling me instead of showing me mm. at times. Mm-hmm. I thought the film shows you so much so well yeah. Yeah. that maybe it didn't need that, but... Like you say, maybe it did. Maybe it, and we just needed that little bit of clarity there. Uh, also at that party is Kesha. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Didn't I, clock her.
2: I no, don't no, remember. No. <laughs> I to, I'll be <laughs> honest, I had to look that up. It's a ghost yeah.
3: performance.
2: Absolutely, yeah. She's, she she's was, called Spirit Girls. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that that meant she was the ghost next door.
3: That's what I thought but as well. That that's David yeah. Lowery. Yeah. I thought that ghost was female. Some yeah. gender stereotype in there. Because <laughs> of
0: the plural sheet.
2: Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> okay so uh, before we move on to our second interview do you guys have any final thoughts on uh, a ghost story
3: Um, I think it's a terrific film it really stays with you for a very very long time and it's very cheesy to use the word haunting but it it (laughs) really does um, have a very profound effect on you if you're happy to buy into it and uh, yeah I think everyone should see it and uh, it's great and I can't wait to see it again
0: I agree. I think while it is quite a melancholic film, and there are characters that have like a fierce cynicism to them, yeah. Ultimately, you end up with a very optimistic, yeah, fi- finale, and it stays with you as a very positive film,
3: life-affirming. Yeah, it's kind of a hopeful ending, in a way.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I really, really liked this film a lot, and like I said at the beginning, I can't think of ever seen anything quite like it, and as you said, it it stays with you for a long time. So there we go. Uh, But as promised, we do have a second interview for you this week. So Charlie Lyon is a British film critic and filmmaker, perhaps most well known for his documentaries Beyond Clueless and Fear Itself, Uh, one of his most recent shorts, Fish Story, is available on the Guardian's website, and he's just released a new film about aspect ratios titled Frames and Containers. Uh, so who better to discuss a ghost story's unusual choice of aspect ratio than Charlie Lyon? So without further ado, here is Jake Cunningham talking to Charlie Lyon himself.
4: Uh, so we're we're delighted to welcome Charlie Lyon onto the Curzon Podcast this week, and in a kind of link a bit to a ghost story. Sure. Uh, so thank is, you for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. Um, so it's no coincidence that Charlie's with us for this episode uh, for a ghost story, because Ghost stories is presented in... And I would say unusual, but maybe unusual for 2017 aspect ratio. And Charlie has just released a short about aspect ratios. Yeah. Uh, so te- can you tell us a bit about frame? Cool. Yeah.
5: Uh, can I th- a bit about my short? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, so it's like a nine-minute video essay, and as you say, it's about aspect ratios, but specifically about. Um, the use of asp- of different aspect ratios, different frame shapes um, to convey different emotional ideas or narrative ideas, or really just to like aid in cinemas, many endeavors. Mm. Um, and, I, and it's also about how one of the real hindrances to that has always been like the fixed shape of the cinema screen. So while you can make all kinds of wonderfully different frame shapes, you still have this sort of firm, box in which to play in um, and so the film is about that and it's about how we
4: might move past that. Like With a ghost story in Dunkirk people are talking about the way films are being presented and people might think listening to this that this is maybe what your film is about but this goes back a hundred years when it's still an issue then.
5: Sure yeah, I mean the, the inspiration for the video is uh, an essay called The Dynamic Square that Sergei Eisenstein wrote in 1931. Um, but could have been written today. Mm. Like he, he is essentially arguing for, um, the ability of cinema to have all kinds of different frame shapes. But what he specifically wants is, uh, a tall image, um, which obviously now he would have yeah. in a million smartphone videos. Um, and you know, he would be on the, I think the right side of history, advocating for that as an exciting new form rather than the people who go like, turn it round, turn yeah. it round, do it landscape. Um, So yeah, this is like a a very old problem and dilemma. And in fact, I think one that people were almost more willing to address at that point when cinema was in its infancy um, than they are now when we've got used to the idea that like wide images mean prestige Mm -hmm. and mean uh, like a respectable form of cinema. Um, And if anything, yeah, like you're right that stuff like, especially something like Dunkirk, which obviously Christopher Nolan is one of the proponents of, like, the, you know, uh, worship form of cinema going, where you have to see it in a certain way, and you have to see it with other people, and you have to do this, and you have to do that, and yet, even that, you know, in seeking to use the IMAX format with its incredible resolution and all this stuff, he has found himself using a, you know, kind of squatter frame, almost, mm-hmm. I think it is almost 4-3, yeah. isn't it? Maybe it is literally. Um, so I think, that even you know, in its own way, that that kind of helpfully illustrates that you know, prestigious filmmaking doesn't just mean wide, wide, wide. Yeah.
4: So when you started, or when you kind of showed this film, you said it's for nerds. Um, but I think when you watch it, nerd or not, it is just it's kind of making people think about the way that their media is being presented to them, as well, and the, the shapes that that come in.
5: Yeah, I think, like, one of the most uh, uh, gratifying things having it online has been the few people who've replied to me and said, like, I am actively disinterested in aspect ratios, but you made me care for nine minutes. Um, And that's amazing, and that's very nice to hear. Um, I think what hopefully people will take from the film as well is that, like, you can, as I do, obsess over these things and learn the minutia of every little technical detail of the various film formats and aspect ratios and so on but the point is actually how they inform your viewing experience and how they allow us to have like a flexible fluid relationship mm. with cinema in all kinds of different spaces and on all kinds of different screens and i think that's the bit that, that has that is applicable to you know everyone's lives who, mm. who has any kind of relationship with with movies um rather than, you know, like a a pedantic knowledge of of exactly how they work. Um, So hopefully, yeah, it gets people thinking about the way they watch films and how they interact with them. And also hopefully stands as a bit of a rebuke to the idea that there is like a right and a wrong way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is gonna become increasingly futile acclaim, Um, especially, you know, when the right way becomes You know the kind of 15 perforation 70 millimeter vaunted imax experience that christopher nolan might advocate which is really wonderful if like me you live in london and can Mm. go to the imax and can afford the 17 pound 50 ticket price um not so great if your nearest imax is a five hour drive away yeah so i think hopefully yeah it gets across that there's there's more to to cinema than the cinema.
4: Yeah, I, I think, and I think that's some of the achievement in a ghost story is that like, Larry, Larry has very much presented it as a cinema film and it's, uh, it's all about getting people to watch it in the cinema. But I don't think, compared to maybe Dunkirk or other Nolan films, I don't think a ghost story will be any lesser for being watched at home.
5: No, in fact, it, the thing it most strongly reminded me of is... Because I found the film very affecting and very moving, but it's I'd like... Deeply intimate, quite like introspective film and it reminded me of some of the most like powerful film viewing experiences I've had at home Mm. when you are in that kind of vulnerable, familiar space and something like that that is quite meditative and quite kind of provocative can really tap into a certain headspace which I think is almost easier to reach at home, I kind of imagined watching it on a laptop in bed, mm. and I think like there's a lot to be said for that kind of film viewing, as well as the collective cinema-going experience, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, I think this is a movie that that could have a lot, quite a lot of lives, unlike, like you say, Dunkirk, which perhaps you want the kind of screamingly loud collective experience.
4: And um, you mentioned on Twitter a few a few films that maybe some purists would be angry at you for having watched on your phone or on your iPad. This is coming from a guy that um, yesterday watched eight and a half on a train.
5: Great. <laughs> it must have been a long train journey. Uh, yeah, no, I can't remember what this was. I think this was some Twitter argument about... Uh,
4: Probably post Dunkirk.
5: About whether you're allowed to watch a film. I haven't seen Dunkirk yet, in fact, but uh, I will be watching that on the big screen because, <laughs> you know, you can't torrent it yet. Uh, I would think I was saying listing, like, great first viewings I'd had on my mm. phone, of which there are many.
4: Yeah, and so do you think that, like, people are maybe a bit too protective over it and that it's more, it, film should more be accessible regardless of the form that's being presented in?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not... Like, the last thing I would say is that there's no difference. I mm. think there's a vast difference um, between watching a film in a dark room with a hundred other people or watching a film in the palm of your hand or so on um, there's huge differences what I don't think there is is like a hierarchy where one is innately better than another like they offer all kinds of different experiences um, and are often enhanced or not by being placed kind of like within the context of your daily life Um, you know there's something about going in a cinema that can kind of separate off film from our actual lived experience um which to me can feel wrong depending on what the the film in question is um maybe that's what you want if you want to just be like lifted out of your own existence and dropped onto a beach uh during the war uh maybe that's not what you want if you're watching a kind of meditative drama about death yeah um so i you know i think it's there's still obviously like drawbacks to watching a film on your phone. It's a bit annoying if you have to hold it the whole time. The screen is quite small unless you've got one of those really big phones. Uh, there's a the sound issue. You know, it's not ideal, but mm. nor is it out of the question.
4: Yeah. Um, and you... on How was in, eight and a half? Um, I, I felt wrong when I had to pause it. <laughs> uh, it just felt a bit off. Um, and there's a, there's a few moments where I felt people watching me But then I had this experience when I watched, I watched, I did a rewatch of Twin Peaks and I did the, when I was watching the first episode of series one where Leland Palmer just breaks down Mm -hmm. and it's just screaming. And I was watching that on the train and I felt so awkward and I felt like everyone was watching me, Right. but I didn't. And I actually thought, I know David Lynch has said that he's very anti anyone watching anything on their phone or things like that and i I was watching on a computer i'd be
5: interested to know though whether he stands by that because that that was a long like people still drag that video up but that was like 15 years ago now Mm. and it was very much in the early days of it even being possible to watch film on your phone so i think in fairness you would have been talking like 360p maxing out on a phone um But also, he's become such a huge proponent of, like, new technologies and new ways of filmmaking in the last decade that I just can't quite believe he still would want the theatrical experience, especially now, you know, obviously... Well, with the new series, so many
4: people would be accessing it not on their TV.
5: Right. Right. Although I know that he is still very precious about everything uh about it being broadcast weekly right so maybe he has his his traditional blind spots <laughs> um but yeah i think also the the uh, the thing that's undeniably is so much of this and hopefully this this is in the film the short um so much of this is just about like tradition mm. and what we accept as the right way and what we write off as the wrong way it's like all the people who would berate you for watching a film on your phone probably wouldn't berate you for watching a film on a plane Mm. even though you're much likely to have like a better screen on your phone than on the back of your plane seat but because we've been doing that for decades that's just a accepted mode of viewing at this point even if there are cliches about like watching crap films on a plane or whatever like that's just entered the like pantheon of ways that we watch movies and i think inevitably devices will join that list very soon
4: Mm. You kind of we briefly touched on it earlier, and you you kind of end frames and containers by talking about the possibilities of VR, which I'd never done. And so preemptive to this interview, I went and tried it out for the first time. Oh, what at, did you do? Uh, the Science Museum they have a space jump from when Tim Peake left the space station and came back down to earth. They've done a recreation of that. Wow! And so this is that was quite an odd experience for me because. I kind of just, I sat down and I put the things on. And because I'm so used to any screen experience, just being, you sit down and look at what's in front of you. Mm. I didn't move for about two minutes and was just looking forwards. And then I had an itch on my shoulder and I I moved my head to, and then I noticed that the screen came with me. When I looked to the side, suddenly there was more. And then I start looking and swirling my head around and kind of had realized why this was maybe a big thing. Do you think it will be? Do you think it could be a 3D?
5: I think, um, I mean, people still make movies in 3D, don't they? Yeah. Are big movies still in 3D? I don't really
4: know. They are, but it is statistically lesser being made. Right.
5: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think certainly, like, supply is outstripping demand for now, um, and there's a huge amount of investment going into something that no... One really outside of like an incredibly small uh, audience of techie people are using, but I can't see it not being adopted at least in some cause. I think what seems to be the disagreement is like over what's going to be the prevalent form of it. So like, is it going to be 360 video? Like it sounds like you were Mm -hmm. watching, where presumably you couldn't have any like control. No, it was just sat down in that universe. Or, as a lot of people I know are pushing much more towards, it's like everything is going to be interactive, so it's much more about like, you know, your, your agency over the narrative as it unfolds. That appeals less to me. I don't know why. Maybe I'm stuck in my ways. Um, or, yeah, the, the kind of version that I talk about in the film is, is more the idea that it's freeing us entirely from, from the idea of like a, a screen shape. Hmm. or any kind of constraint so i think it's very freeing in that sense and you know certainly i can imagine like something as simple as putting on a vr headset and watching a ghost story just sort of like floating in front of you in its little postcard frame yeah. being an incredibly satisfying way to do that
4: yeah oh that would be great but
5: wouldn't even leave need to leave the comfort of your home yeah
4: oh not, not that I'm an expert in VR, means, but that sounds brilliant. Yeah,
5: unfortunately, I don't think that's where like the big VR money is yeah. going. It's just like making, <laughs> like quite a nice little viewing experience for indie films, but certainly that's always going to be there. Yeah,
4: and we talked a bit about the internet, and it's been key in helping people, myself included, uh, watch a lot of films that we wouldn't normally have access to and watching them on various devices. Um, and I would think with your work, particularly starting with Beyond Clueless, access to the internet has been pretty important
5: yeah absolutely so beyond clueless um if people aren't familiar with it is a essay film about teen movies it's an hour and a half long and it's built entirely from existing teen movies kind of collaged together to kind of deconstruct and analyze that genre um and yeah like absolutely the the driving force behind that was this what even you know only a few years ago in like 2014 when that movie came out um, still felt like quite a bracing new mode of film viewing which is just the availability of everything Mm -hmm. at your fingertips and the ability to just leap between them you know i think like when did netflix launch in the uk it was only like 2011 or something i think but i remember that just being like such a revelation the idea that film viewing didn't necessarily need to be like committing to an hour and a half and like, and often, you know, committing a fiver to that hour and a half. Like it could be flitting. Yeah. Between well, experiences. And
4: beyond clueless is chaptered. So it's part of that reasoning down that people could pause it.
5: Right. I mean, like, not consciously, yeah. but yeah, in <laughs> hindsight, absolutely. Like the whole thing was definitely inspired by that kind of like, um, synaptic almost mode of viewing um, and you know it, it emerged from watching two, three hundred teen movies in quick succession and the way that their boundaries all blurred and they all seem to start existing in this one shared teen movie universe and so my idea was to create a film that would feel like it was based in that universe um, and yeah I love the idea that people might like watch 30 minutes of it and go like oh yeah do you remember that film and then watch an hour of that film like and then go back to mine i, I don't, really don't care how people watch it as long as they watch it uh, engagedly um so yeah like when that then wound up on netflix and when you finished it it would say like do you want to watch mean girls <laughs> that felt like a perfect continuation of that sort of mode of thinking
4: and it was, this it kind of feels like there's this very um kind of strong relationship between that film and the in- internet because it was it was born but like, it exists because of Kickstarter.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, like, I think I was lucky that that was quite new here at the time. I think it, it was only in like the second month of Kickstarter's existence in the UK. And obviously that's a website that people quite quickly got quite sick of hearing about <laughs> or at least being asked to uh, support. Um, so again yeah like it was very fortunate that it seemed to kind of tap into a a thing at the exact moment of its genesis um also at the you know i don't know whether i was just like hyper aware because i was working on it at the time but it seemed to be the moment that like kids who grew up with 90s teen movies suddenly were in charge of like commissioning for saturday newspaper supplements and stuff and so suddenly there are all these like articles about like oh the 90s teen revival and all this blah 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 blah, which i don't doubt helped the film um although i think it was purely a case of like all those people getting to an age when they start getting nostalgic as was certainly the case with me Mm. um but yeah no things have a a strange way of kind of like coming together
4: yeah i think not uh like since then uh in the last few years we've seen an explosion of these essay films whether that's short film or long long form on the internet people like nerd writer tony show cognada these films they like particularly thinking koganada's work it kind of exists in its own right rather than just being about the film that it's about do you find that pretty exciting that there's so much work is now available online of people delving into films
5: Yeah, totally. I think, like, the thing that's really amazing to me is the way it's completely collapsed the distinction that would have been there previously between, like, films, quote-unquote, and then I think how essay filmmaking was often thought of before as this, like, parasitic, almost, like, attachment Hmm. um, that, that existed, like, as an extension of, like, quote-unquote proper work um and like you say like you watch something that carganada has made that's maybe a 10-minute film about a film that you've never seen and in and of itself it's such a fascinating piece of art and it's so fully formed and it's so engaging that it's it's all the more interesting for being connected to another work of art but it's by no means greater or lesser than inherently that work
4: of art um like with Beyond Clueless, I have not seen... No one could have, yeah. that's the thing. Like, yeah, exactly. and it's so, it, but it works, completely works. And I'm like, like I'm, uh, yeah, it's so enjoyable, but that's not for necessarily getting it all.
5: And I think what's really nice is like, I'm still, I still have some of these like hang-ups definitely where like, you know, frames and containers, the aspect ratio thing, it's like a nine minute film. I put it on the internet I have to like force myself to call it a film (laughs) because I I, even I like as someone who's been making this work for years now have these like hang-ups still of like you know this is a video and this is a film and this can play film festivals and this just goes on YouTube and the you know like Cogonada who we were just talking about has just made um, a fiction feature film uh, with like you know, an amazing cast and it was at Sundance and like it's absolutely not a video essay really in any way uh, unless you're thinking in very abstract terms Um, but the real challenge is to not think of it as any more or less of a film than everything he made before and I very much like as a point of principle believe that to be the case but I still sometimes have to like push myself to actually go down that road
4: I'm really excited about Columbus. Cogginala's foot. is probably one of my most anticipated for the year, and I still haven't got word of when it's going to be out in the UK. Um, but for the, he's kind of branched out there, and he's branched out from you other people's work to tell his own story, which in a way for the first time we got really from you with Fish Story a couple of weeks ago.
5: Yeah, that's that's probably true. Well, it's like, well, it's not really my story. No, is, that's true. The thing though, it, uh, I'm still sort of cannibalising. <laughs> um, yeah, the film is a, a short uh, documentary um, in which a friend of mine called Casper Salmon tells the story of uh, his grandmother, Mrs. Salmon, uh, supposedly being invited to this gathering in Wales in the 1980s, at which her and a bunch of other fish surnamed people were kind of um you know congratulated on their names (laughs) and given uh the fish of their name um and so the film is half him telling that story and then half me investigating yeah
4: because i think you whether or not it's true at the start of the film it's you getting him to tell the story again so it's it sounds like you've heard this a lot of times yeah
5: well it was like he made the mistake of telling me it once and then i couldn't let it lie like if i ever introduced him to someone new it would be like this is casper casper tell the fish story <laughs> um so this is really just a continuation of that um and yeah in, you say it's different but actually the more i think about it it's like it's basically just an essay film about his story mm. uh where rather than like taking an existing film and presenting it in a new context I'm taking an existing story and completely, completely taking it for myself
4: yeah I think with this what's interesting is what I would struggle with if I had done the work that you've previously done is then having to actually go and get, get the camera out and decide oh, how things are going to look why do people bother yeah.
5: shooting new material what a headache yeah uh, I must- yeah. no I, ha- I take no joy in it it takes forever And it's utterly unsatisfying to me until I can like sit down with the footage and start manipulating it. I'm definitely not one for the shoot.
4: (laughs) Um, Going back to a ghost story. People can choose to watch this on a VR headset or an iPad. Being a cinema podcast, it's probably worth mentioning that it is also available to watch in the cinema too.
5: Yeah, I mean, I watched it at the cinema and I had a good time. I'm not, um, I'm not writing that off as, a, as an option. It'd be interesting to see... I mean, it'd be interesting to certain people. <laughs> it'd be interesting to me to see how it feels in different cinema spaces as well because, like, the place I was at did the very proper thing of, like, bringing the curtains in. Mm. Um, and that creates one kind of feel when you then have this, like rounded image within that um but so many cinemas now don't do the curtain thing it might almost be quite interesting to see what this looks like as kind of like an island mm. within the screen or then you've got those cinemas that even have like curved screens um much like the frame of a ghost story so then you've got to kind of curve within a curve if any of this is interesting to you get in touch yeah we might be friends uh for the rest of you, apologies. The film was very good. You should go and see it.
4: Yeah, we should probably wrap up there. Then. <laughs> once, <laughs> once, like, everyone who... Well, I mean, to be honest, probably five minutes in, the pe- most people stop listening sure. after the aspect ratio chat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it can right. happen. Yeah. All right. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Cheers.
2: you. Okay, so before we leave this week, uh, we just want to quickly talk about The Handmaiden, which is now available on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, and it became... I think it's one of the biggest foreign language releases in the UK of all time. Is that right?
3: Certainly the biggest of the last ten years. I think. Yeah. 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 Um, which is and excellent news for foreign yeah, language cinema. Absolutely. Which, which doesn't exist, by the way. Cinema <laughs> is a foreign language itself. In the words of Lewis Carroll. Uh,
2: it became one of my favorite films of the year. I first saw it at the uh, London Film Festival last year, and I've since seen it uh, two or three more times. Uh, absolutely loved it. Um, so I'm very happy it's now at Cousin Home Cinema. So guys, what did you think of The Handmaiden?
3: It's, uh, well, I it's, uh, again, a very long time ago since yeah. I saw it, but it's an absolutely delectable, uh, very, very twisty right. uh, thriller with yeah. uh, lots of um, exciting and absolutely inventive stuff that happens in terms of the narrative twists and the plot uh, turns, um, some brilliant, brilliant female performances in yes. it, uh, and just really a fun ride Um, it's it's also got incredibly beautiful costumes and the period setting is extraordinary and a friend of mine explained to me some stuff about uh, the particular choices of um, costume and cars there's a lot of stuff to do with um, using up um, sort of Japanese uh, cultural uh, pieces within the setting in Korea because this is all set at the time of um, the Japanese invasion of Korea, and this kind of cultural interdependence between mm. the two, and how certain characters decide to pretend that they're going to assume this Japanese identity and others yeah. uh, remain very much firmly in their Korean identity. So there's a lot to it that I'm not fully able to explain, <laughs> but uh, it's it's really one film that you want to dig into after you've enjoyed the kind of plot twist and turns um, so I thoroughly recommend the second viewing which is what I'm gonna be doing yeah. probably tonight uh-huh. <laughs> yeah.
2: and it's also a really nice twist on the sort of revenge thriller as well yeah. yeah not just an older man going around shooting people that hurt his family this actually has some intelligence to it and actually considering it's Park Chan-wook who's known as this kind of really intensely violent mm. director that's difficult to watch I just think this is quite like we said about a ghost story, in a weird way, life-affirming and quite positive. Yeah. Yeah, quite Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Girls to the front.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So The Handmaiden was our film of the week a few months back on the podcast, so uh, do check out our review for that and go and watch it on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, So thank you very much for listening. If you like what you heard here, then why not go back and check out some of our archive episodes, including episodes on my Scientology movie featuring Louis Theroux, Moonlight, featuring the now Oscar-winning writer Terrell Alvin McCraney, and Their Finest, featuring Bill Nye and Gemma Arterton. So that's goodbye from Ryan. Goodbye. Goodbye from Ryan. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Thank you very much for listening.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.